Hi, you're listening to the Stefan Levera podcast. Today, for episode 237, Safedine Amus, the author of The Bitcoin Standard and a regular guest on my show, rejoins me to talk about his upcoming book, The Fiat Standard. So we talk a little bit more into detail around how the Fiat Standard started and the propaganda that they used to maintain it. This show brought to you by Swan Bitcoin. Bitcoin has emerged as a major player on the global stage. It has been significantly de-risked over the past year with major investors, institutions, and companies making big investments. At this point, everyone should probably own at least a little. A common way people get started is establishing their initial position with a one-time buy and then start dollar cost averaging with automatic recurring buys. Swan Bitcoin was built to do just this. With Swan, you can create a recurring purchase plan, $100 a week or $20 a day, and you can make one-time buys. Swan supports bankwise for larger amounts and ACH transfers for smaller one-time buys is rolling out to members now. Swan is available in all states and territories of the US, including New York. Swan is the best place to send your friends and family when they're starting investing in Bitcoin. Send them to swanbitcoin.com slash Levera and they will get $10 of free Bitcoin dropped in their account when they become a member. swanbitcoin.com slash Levera. This show also brought to you by CypherSafe.io. They're producing metal backup seed products like the Cypher Wheel, and they've got a new product, the Bitcoin Recovery Tag, specifically helping you with recovery. It's an extra stainless steel tag with info like the original wallet, gap limit, derivation types, scripts used, and so on. Major hardware wallets all have their own type of recovery tag specifying the data for that hardware wallet type. So you attach it to your seed word backup with a stainless steel cable included. And there's even a website link for recovery to help you or your heirs recovering the coins on Electrum. So it really adds that value of helping you recover in practice. The Bitcoin recovery tag works with any seed word backup device, not just CypherWheel, so you can buy it and attach it there or keep it together. Go and buy yours at cyphersafe.io and use the code Levera for a discount. Unchained Capital is building Bitcoin native financial services on a foundation of multi-signature. So if you want to set up a multi-sig vault where you hold two of the three keys and Unchained holds the third key as a recovery partner and also a technology partner, this is a great option for you. And if you want a hand with the setup, if you want the white glove treatment, they've got the concierge onboarding service where they will ship you some hardware wallets, they'll do calls with you, answer your questions and deposit $1,000 of Bitcoin in your vault. Use the code Lavera for that on the website uh, and the link for that will be in the show notes. Unchained also offer an OTC desk for large purchases, and this is also a good choice if you're looking at self-directed Bitcoin retirement accounts or if you're a company looking to move your Bitcoin to Treasury. So go and check them out. The website is unchained-capital.com. Safedine, great to chat with you again. Always fun chatting to you, Stefan. So Safe, I uh, had the pleasure of uh, looking at some of your new work. I pre-ordered it, uh, but uh, firstly, just tell us a little bit about it. What is the Fiat Standard? What are you trying to achieve here? Uh, the Fiat Standard was uh, born out of the um, questions that were left unanswered in the Bitcoin Standard. Um, so the Bitcoin Standard uh, explained how uh, Bitcoin is the hardest money ever invented and in terms of its saleability across time it beats anything else that we've ever had because it uh, it has the highest stock to flow ratio and gave plenty of examples of how this generally means that you know <laughs> this leads to number go up technology which unfortunately i hadn't had the term when i wrote the book um it, it would have saved me a lot 
if I could have just explained the NGU technology. But uh, because of the increase in the value of the harder money, eventually it ends up dominating the other monies and driving them out of the market. So uh, given that that is kind of the implication of the Bitcoin standard, it would be interesting to imagine how such a process could unfold. How can the uh, uh, current monetary system be overthrown? And so to do that, this book begins uh, by studying the fiat monetary system from first principles, really, in a similar way to how I studied and explained the Bitcoin standard in uh, uh, 2017, published 2018. You know, I looked at the thing and I tried to make sense of the economic um, properties of it and tried to explain them with uh, reference to debates in academic economics. Um, and so I thought, you know, Bitcoin is a simpler, neater uh, system, but uh, this kind of, it's a more advanced system. It's a system that performs the functions of um, money and settlement in a far neater, simplified way that allows us to really discern the essential elements of um, these functions. And then we can apply that lens to looking at fiat and try and understand how fiat functions. And I, as I started to think in these terms, I started to realize really this is, um, this is quite a useful way of understanding how fiat functions. In a similar way, you know, we, you and I went through a period where we, um, we were alt-curious and we looked into altcoins and read uh, some of their stupid white papers. And, you know, when you go through this exercise of looking at an entire monetary system and trying to understand how it goes, you know, where is the mining happening? How are the uh, rewards distributed and um, how are the transaction fees paid and so on? You, you, you start to form a picture of the essentials of how this thing works. And so um, applying that framework to fiat would be a useful way of beginning to assess how fiat works and then uh, using that as a um, springboard, really, to explain what happens as uh, Bitcoin continues to grow and fiat continues to do what it has been doing uh, forever. So we're trying to look at look back at the fiat system and understand how we got into the position that we are in today, because I'm sure in many cases, people who are transacting you know, with gold directly, never intended for it to become so captured. But how did it? How did we end up in uh, this kind of situation? I think looking at uh, fiat in in terms of trying to understand the problem it solves and trying to explain how it behaves in the way that it behaves. I think in the same way that with Bitcoin, I thought that saleability across time was the most interesting aspect um, and and the most fruitful avenue to explore to understand how this thing works. I think with fiat, really the uh, killer app behind it is saleability across space. The ability of fiat uh, money essentially to settle trade across space at a much faster rate than all the alternatives that existed at that time, because all the alternatives effectively were uh, based on uh, physical money, you know, actual uh, metals that you had to lug around and move around and put on boats and sometimes the boats would sink uh, while crossing the, uh, Medi- the Atlantic or uh, the Mediterranean or whatever. You know, by substituting the 
credit of government, which is what fiat money does. Effectively, what fiat money does is that instead of having gold as the native token of the payment system that is international, you end up having the credit of the sovereign serving as the token. And so the token's supply is essentially the supply of whoever can draw credit on the sovereign, whoever can issue credit backed by the sovereign, essentially. And so anybody who creates credit gets to essentially create uh, new fiat tokens. And I think, you know, when you think about it this way, it starts to make a lot of sense. Yeah, for sure. And I think that really aligns well. So what you're saying aligns well with the way Carl Menger explains, you know, the origins of money. He's talking about saleability through time and space. And so really what was happening is some of this capture of the system happened because people wanted something saleable through space and more easily. But then what happens is people end up using custodians. They end up using uh, these third parties and there essentially is a lot of trust placed in that system. And so essentially it seems as though as the system requires more trust in it. And that's where things can get manipulated in terms of the price and the ratios, uh, you know, the price of gold or the reserve ratios required or the way uh, you can extend credit in such a system. So can you tell us a little bit about the importance of trust in that system and, you know, perhaps the mistakes that were made along the way? Yeah, I think, you know, if you, if you read the Bitcoin standard, and I think you and I, the way that we think generally, we see this move from gold to fiat as just being a completely horrible mistake. And I think the focus there uh, in that view, which I think is highly justified, is that you look at the saleability across time of gold, you know, you look at the stock to flow of gold, and you see that it offered us a, a safe haven, it offered everybody a neutral medium of saving and apolitical money that was international, it was available for anybody, you know, you could start saving from uh, the day you're born and uh, keep saving until you die. And the same gold coins can continue to hold value throughout your life. And you could take them anywhere in the world. It, this was, uh, and you know, because it had a very high stock to flow ratio, substituting that with government money, which had a much higher uh, stock to flow ratio, a, a very high cost to society and civilization, which, you know, uh, I'm sure you and your listeners are uh, very well familiar with. But I think in, in a sense, you would like it if those uh, governments and central banks ran these systems based on gold. But if you start thinking about it from engineering terms, it's just, you know, if you have gold, you are effectively having to trust in these people anyway. The gold has no, once you see Bitcoin, you see how Bitcoin functions and, you know, you can run your own node and you can run the numbers. Uh, once you see how this system works, you start to really think, you can see where the shortcoming of gold is from the fact that just moving gold around, saleability across space in gold is pretty inadequate for the 19th and 20th century. Well, for the 19th, it could keep up, I guess, but by the 20th is when it really couldn't keep up. And uh, in, in that sense, you know, whether it was the Bank of England or the US Federal Reserve, they did offer superior saleability across space. I think we kind of have to grudgingly admit this, that fiat just allows you to send money across the world in a way that becomes much more efficient than having to lug gold pieces around because, you know, lugging gold around is expensive and risky. And if 
you just hand over the entire system to the government where you rely on the trust of the government, then the government runs its own accounts and it does its own magic. And, you know, your money gets from point A to point B. <laughs> but, you know, occasionally it blows up and it's usually bleeding value, but, you know, you can't have everything in life. <laughs> uh, yeah. And I guess, you know, obviously there was no real free market competition. Like it wasn't... Um, we, we couldn't build a, uh, a free market alternative around gold because the nature of its centralization means that you have to be running along with the legal and political uh, and judicial institutions of the, of the country in which you're operating the system. So I think it is really the, the, the saleability across um, space that is uh, what gives fiat its, uh, its advantage. And it's what led to the compromise of the monetary supply and you see the the story of how it's you know slowly but surely they went off gold and then even though the price of gold could rise it still could not displace a national currencies because you just couldn't build a monetary system around gold and so everybody is stuck speculating on national currencies and trying to figure out which one of them is going to be the least uh, worst yeah and uh, also one point that stuck out to me in chapter two is you mention here about how essentially the government will manipulate the price of gold in terms of, you know, uh, that's one of the things that they would try to do. And so one idea that comes up here is the devaluation of the pound to allow the bank's reserves to back the currency. And you, you point out here that this would have been unspeakably unpopular. Now, I guess the question then is, do you think people's attitudes towards these things have shifted these days and perhaps were they more cognizant of these matters back then? Yeah, it's quite interesting. Um, I think about fiat in first principles terms, you know, I, I thought the whole book is almost um, modeled after the Bitcoin standard and that I'm trying to locate parallels for each. And so I, I went back to the to, to 1914, the beginning of the war, looking at how fiat came about, you know, how we moved from gold. And you see, back then, I think this is a really important fact, that there was no Satoshi, and there was no designer, and there was no idea about where they were headed with this design. You know, there was no vision in 1914 and 15, as these countries came off the gold standard. There was no end goal in anybody's mind that in 1973, there would be no link whatsoever between gold and money. In the mind of everybody, uh, the question was, you know, when we return to gold, how do we return to gold? And it was well understood that, you know, the return to gold was, it had to happen. You know, the sterling pound was a matter of national pride in England. And they'd been on this rate of four pounds and 25 cents uh, or was it 65? I forget the exact rate um, for one ounce of gold. They've been at that since Isaac Newton himself had set that rate. So it's been around for 200 years. It was only interrupted during the Napoleonic War, but then they returned back to the original price. So during the First World War, it was initially well understood that, you know, we, we're going back on the gold standard. And yet they managed to drag this on for 50, 60 years and never went back on the gold standard. And uh, we've moved on to this the system that really emerged politically out of um, the politics of World War I and World War II and um, not through design. Right. And I think another really interesting point that I saw from Chapter 2 is there's discussion around this idea of exporting inflation, right? So there's this idea that other countries are using 
either the US dollar or UK uh, sterling. And in some sense, the US and the UK can benefit from this because they can unload some of their, you know, they've got more bag holders, right? <laughs> exactly. Exactly. This is this I, I've uh, digging in uh, in chapter two. I, I've really come to realize the importance of something that is called the gold exchange standard. And uh, this was a system where the UK had um, or Great Britain had implemented with its colonies in the late 19th centuries, where with some of its colonies who had um, whose central banks essentially kept their reserves in London in the form of uh, English pounds. And so um, the Bank of England uh, made a great trade on uh, selling these uh, uh, colonies uh, claims on gold, which effectively these colonies weren't going to cash out uh, very frequently because they needed them in uh, in the Bank of England's payment uh, network, you know they needed them on the Bank of England platform because they were using this to settle their accounts with all the other central banks for buying stuff. You know this was their uh, foreign account essentially, and so it was kept in London. And so the Bank of England didn't really have to fulfill um, withdrawals for this very frequently. And at the break, at the outbreak of World War One, they had only thirty-one percent reserves of gold to back up the uh, um, English pounds that were outstanding for the countries that were on the gold exchange standard. So that ultimately was the uh, driver of the problems of the Bank of England, and that's why they had to not officially. They didn't officially go off the gold standard because you know they wanted to maintain their. Uh, position as the financial center, and they kept on um, insisting that that was not going to happen. But the problem started because of this. And the solution, you know, in a typical um, uh, fashion, is to, 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 you know, to, to, to fashion the solution out of the problem, um, what they did was they effectively uh, sought to export this model to the rest of the world after World War One by um, implementing all these new in international uh, uh, arrangements whereby other countries needed to hold English uh, sterling pounds in order to settle their accounts. And so it, there was the Treaty of Genoa in 1922, where the, the US and the UK uh, basically dumped their bags of mainly sterling. And the US did a little bit of dumping, but um, it was really the, the UK that had uh, the most bags because they they had gone off the um, they had gone off the gold standard. And um, in 1914, the U.S. did not go off the gold standard until 1917. So for the first three years of the war, the U.K. and the rest of Europe were bleeding gold to the U.S. And um, the U.S. only really left the gold standard in 1917, so still had a quite more gold and was in much better shape than Britain. And the U.S. was able to go back to the gold standard in 1922, but uh, the U.K. was not. Um, so then this became popular, the gold exchange standards, just get all these countries to hold pounds sterling. And, you know, usually it came along with talk about financial stability and international cooperation. And, you know, we're going to need you to do your part 
by holding our bags for us while we print more sterling. And then, you know, this became more and more popular. And then this was basically what they did with the Bretton Woods Agreement, where the U.S. copied the model and took it over from the Brits and started dumping their dollar bags on the rest of the world. It's the same thing. It's the gold exchange standard, wherein all those countries don't get to use the gold themselves. They get to use the pound or the dollar, which are backed by gold, and they get to have a promise that, you know, okay, your paper is redeemable as long as you don't try and redeem it in any significant <laughs> quantities. Right. And um, over time, they, they start to kind of shut the windows in which you are, are able to claim it back. So, you know, at the start, it's kind of uh, you know, open generally, but then later it becomes more like, oh, no, it's only if you're a you know commercial bank. And then later, it's only if you're a central bank that you're allowed to try and claim back, right? Yeah. And then nobody, basically. And then they just shut it up entirely in 1971. What the fuck happened in 1971, as always? <laughs> yeah, it's very uh, unfortunate. And so I guess um, it, it it takes some time as well for, for that kind of process to happen. And so I guess it's a process of capture. And so the better that your monetary good can kind of resist it, well, the better you are in terms of a, as a society and uh, you know, stopping kind of a, a cultural and societal degeneration. Um, in some in certain respects it's also important to just talk a little bit about the politics of like revaluations right so there's a sense of when the government or the central bank and they're kind of negotiating and deciding okay i guess there's a sense of like oh okay these you know you're coming to the table and you've got this much gold and so that is kind of like an indicator of how much power or relative strength you have versus the other quote-unquote players at the table and so I guess there's like a bit of a power dynamic game there based on how much gold you have. But that dynamic has obviously shifted in today's world that we could argue maybe gold is not as, it's not seen as that important, even though central banks of today still hold, some of them still hold gold, right? Yeah, but I think, uh, you know, ownership of gold is pretty important because obviously central banks still own it. Um, and it's still the one monetary asset that is free from any encumbrance. Well, up until Bitcoin came along, it was the only monetary asset that had that. So still kind of a big deal, obviously. But I think, um, to be fair, I think it's it's really more about who is able to command a um, an international um settlement network really that's ultimately what it comes down to and i think if you if you're able to secure physically an international settlement network if you're able to secure a settlement and banking network that occurs um that, that allows people to transact across borders if you have um the security over that then it ultimately maybe it doesn't even matter if you run it on um gold tokens or if you run it on um, fiat tokens um I guess, or I, I you know, I, I, it's not accurate to say that it doesn't. It, it does matter because ultimately, if you're running it on your own tokens, you know, uh, we see what happens. It, um, it it has to eventually become politically motivated. Eventually, it gets captured, um, and it's going to inevitably lead to all the problems that um, come with political capture of money that have always come with political capture of money. Whereas if you had it linked to a hard asset, it would be very um, different. So I think, you know, one, one, one problem this shows us in the fiat standard is really 
it, it unsolves the problem of money in a sense because it still keeps it, it, it's it prevents us from having this one monetary medium that everybody uses this one universal medium which is what we had with gold and at the early 20th century you know gold had pretty much already demonetized silver at that point so it really was only gold and so we had this problem finally solved where everybody everywhere in the world was using one thing as money and then fiat comes along and it introduces all these many other uh, tokens and then there's gold that can't be completely demonetized and if you're looking for saleability across space if you want to spend money in the uh, you know in, in the town next door and in the country next to you and in the, the other continents of the world then you're going to need a various some combination of the various fiats but if you want to save money for the future if you want saleability across time if you're thinking about something that you want to keep for the future then you end up having to uh, think about gold and so you have to hold some gold and so this really unsolves the problem of money because now you have to um, you have a much more sophisticated and complicated and error prone calculation of how much of my money should I allocate for saleability across time should I prioritize for the future and how much of my money should I prioritize for the uh, present for saleability across space and by putting it in fiat. And so you end up, and, and of course, you know, if you live outside the US, then most likely you have to keep more than one currency in mind as well. So you end up with people having to think about gold and their local fiat currency and the dollar. And it just gives everybody much more mental um, um, arithmetic to perform about money. And it makes the process of saving and the process of having a cash balance much more sophisticated and complicated than really it should be. Because if you had one form of money, it would be the one form of money that had the best saleability across space and time. And then you could just uh, you know, have that stash there for all your interspatial and intertemporal needs. Yeah, that's a really nice way of putting it, actually. The combination there of the time and space. Back to the show in a moment after a word for the sponsors of the show. Knox is a Bitcoin custodian dedicated to ensuring their insurance protection covers the full value of their customers' assets. For example, suppose a fiduciary wants to hold $250 million of Bitcoin with Knox. Knox will seek to obtain $250 million of insurance dedicated exclusively to that account and adjustable to volatility. No fractional coverage or narrow scope. Insurance for what it's worth. A tool to transfer risk. If you are a Bitcoin company, investment fund, trust, or family office, check out Knox for your insured custody. That's knoxcustody.com. Lend at HodlHodl is a global Bitcoin-backed lending platform that allows you to lend and borrow anonymously on your own terms. HodlHodl offers a peer-to-peer lending solution, ensuring a secure and transparent collateral storage system by providing a unique multi-signature escrow for each deal. This is a way to grow your savings and earn returns on your investment. So if you have any stablecoins lying around, create your offers and earn interest by lending on Lend at HodlHodl. Or if you're a Bitcoiner and you need some liquidity, you can borrow stablecoins and keep on hodling. With HodlHodl's Lend platform, you set your own terms and you put up offers depending on how long you want to borrow or lend and interest rates. Go and check it out, lend.hodlhodl.com. Moving to chapter three then. So you've got this uh, idea of the underlying technology behind fiat. And so can you tell us a little bit about what the fiat system looks like? 
Yeah, I tried to look at fiat as a digital currency because it is a digital currency. Let's remember, it's um, something like 90% of all fiat tokens are digital. It's only about 10% of them that get printed out on their uh, primitive open dimes, which are made out of paper. Um, so I guess it, it, it's still a digital currency. And if you start thinking about it in that sense, it's, um, it's, it's, it's easier to make sense of how the network works. So if you think about the node in Bitcoin, what is the equivalent of a node in the fiat system? There's really only one full node in the fiat system. There's one sovereign fiat node in on the entire fiat system, and it's the U.S. Federal Reserve. And that is the only node that is able to um, decide definitively on the correct uh, uh, record of transactions and on the balances. It can revoke anybody's balance and it can um, add uh, new points to anybody's uh, uh, balance anywhere. You know, they can shut off entire countries and they can... um, take money from any account and they can cancel any transactions and so on. So it's really the Federal Reserve that's the one central node. And then there are, um, you know, the other nodes, there are there are something you could say that uh, similar to uh, SPV nodes, which are the central banks, which aren't really full nodes because they can't really truly decide on the, they can't decide the monetary supply of the token uh, that is on the network. They can't decide the native token monetary supply. And they can't decide uh, on the uh, on the record of transactions. But they can, um, you know, verify payments and clear payments for, uh, for people within their country. And then you have the mining nodes, which are essentially any financial institution or any institution that can issue credit that can uh, borrow backed by the U.S. government. These institutions are able to mine. They can't decide on the record of transactions, but they can mine. They're not full nodes, but they are mining nodes because they make new money. And I think that's that's really uh, the, the key analytical tool of this book is when you start thinking about what it means when you substitute the process of mining in Bitcoin with the process of lending. In Bitcoin, you do proof of work in order to make new tokens, in order to make new coins, new Satoshis, you need to do proof of work. In fiat, you need to lend, you need to make a loan in order to make new coins. So with that, it's really a massive power being given to those special privileged few who are able to lend out and essentially create new money. Now, the government imposes all sorts of, you know, conditions and regulations and so on on those uh, banks and those financial institutions that are able to create new credit, but it is a massive power for them. And uh, there's, there's kind of a whole convoluted operation around this, right? Because uh, it's not just um, like... They, they sort of mask it with these different terms and uh, kind of processes around that. So uh, how would you sort of talk about that, that um, kind of ob- obscuring of the what's really going on? I mean, I think the, the, uh, the reality is that it's just, it, it, it's, it, it's, it, it's kind of a decentralized system if you think about it. And um, it, 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 it emerges as a sort of um, 
you know, as as the government takes on the provision of the currency, as the government guarantees the central bank's monopolies, uh, monopoly and the banking monopoly, the government effectively becomes the guarantor of the banking system. And that then means that the banking system's creation of credit allows for um, creation of new money. And so it, 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 it'll, um, it means that there's really, it, it, it's, it's not very easy to figure out just how much money there is. The money supply is not very clear because you never really know how much credit is being created and you never really know and, and of course, there's the issue of the maturity of different types of monies and what can count of money and what can't count of money. So the supply is completely um, um, uh, obscure for most people. It's very hard to, to come up with a clear answer about what the supply is. And there are different definitions. And um, the... Uh, I'm sorry, what, what was the... Yeah, uh, so was... I think uh, w one other point um, that's uh, also interesting to discuss is... Uh, What's economic survival based on? And in, in in this chapter you're talking about, it's, it's almost based on getting into larger debt um, because you want to get present goods for future liabilities, right? Exactly. Yes. This is, I think, the key, th the, the way that it just ends up, which is why I really, the more that I read into this book, the more you realize that this is just... Uh, 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 you see the technological underpinnings and the technological um, realities that create the incentives for these things to happen. And it makes it really look far less nefarious. It's not like um, uh, it, it, there, there are serious incentives for doing this because of the way that the system works. Once you have this guarantee of debt, um, it, it, it's, it, it, it just becomes more profitable for you to get into debt because every time you get into debt for something you're able to uh, uh, you're allowing the uh, person who's lending you the financial institution that is lending you you're allowing them to mine new tokens and so think about it this way you can when you're buying a house you have a choice between either just buy a house or buy a house and mine new fiat tokens you know imagine if that happened with bitcoin you're, you can just buy uh, Bitcoin, buy a house with Bitcoin, or you can buy the house with somebody else's Bitcoin. And by buying it with somebody else's Bitcoin, they get to mine new Bitcoin. They bring new Bitcoin about. Which one do you think is going to be cheaper? I think the, obviously the, the second one is going to be cheaper in real terms because the lender has an incentive to make it cheaper for you because they would like it they would like you to do that because if you don't do that and you buy the house in cash, it's uh, they don't get to make new tokens. Yeah, it's a very, uh, very dark system that we've uh, found ourselves in. Uh, and uh, th there's a whole host of other things that kind of keep us in this world as well. So it's things like, you know, the fact that we have to use the fiat coin for tax payment, right? Yeah, you've got to stay in it. It's a monopoly. It's a single system that is a monopoly system. And I think it's, um, you know, it's, it's the consequences of the fact that it is a monopoly that it ends up becoming uh, so dysfunctional. But um, it's just the reality of the incentives that everybody faces. And in a sense, you know, you could think about it as being... Um, a conspiracy in some way, but really, the more you think about it just being as uh, as 
um, the more you think about the technological incentives there, you see why it makes sense from an economic perspective and why it just, in this kind of system, it makes sense to get into more debt. And in this kind of system, the people who succeed the most, the companies who succeed the most are the ones that are able to take on the most debt while skirting the line of profitability and not sinking into bankruptcy. That's really the key. You need to just keep on uh, running up a bigger loan and going from one loan to the other. And the key to do that is to have enough cash flow to continue to um, uh, make your payments, so continue to make sure that your credit worthiness increases, and so that'll allow you to grow in size. And you know, this is uh, this is just how the system ends up working. And you can you can see how it just makes sense once you've made it so that it is a financial system that is guaranteed by the government. It's just going to end up being this way, um, even though it's motivated by really what sounds like such a good idea you know let's just guarantee the banking system and prevent it from uh, collapsing because you know you wouldn't want people to lose their savings savings are good let's guarantee savings well you end up actually just uh, <laughs> destroying savings and plunging everybody into debt mm, yeah with the kind of access to credit obviously a big big beneficiary is the government itself it can become so much larger and uh, as you point out the central bank and the government they have this whole song and dance but in reality governments are very much funded through government bonds and guess what central banks are the main market maker in government bonds right so it just i think this is one of those points where people who are not who are not as um into the Austrian economics of it and or like reading kind of understanding like what's going on, how's the government funding itself? They, they don't see this idea that, you know, fiat as a standard is what's enabled governments to be so large. Wouldn't you say? Absolutely. Government can just interfere at any market in any good anywhere and uh, tip the balances in any way it wants, because it can just allocate an infinite amount of tokens as long as the currency doesn't collapse. Of course, the currency can collapse often, and it does collapse. Um, but you know, until then, they can decide to set, uh, you know, to, to go in and buy from this producer, not buy from that producer. They can decide what happens to, uh, you know, they can decide to allocate credits to one kind of producers, not the other, and that will completely. Um, shape the, the shape of the uh, market. It's a, it's an enormous amount of power that they are able to allocate, and it's 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 massively distortionary of the market process. And that's the thing that I focus on in the second part of the book, fiat life, trying to think of the um, you know downstream economic, social, political, and cultural effects of this kind of system, wherein. A, you're losing the hardness of money. So money is now much easier than uh, gold. Um, And, you know, of course, with varying degrees across the world, but still easier than gold, no doubt about it. And uh, on the other hand, you're also having this massive distortionary effect on markets where one monopoly entity can just come in and allocate infinite amounts of cash at any uh, producer or consumer in the uh, market. Um, I also really enjoyed one of the thought experiments you proposed here. So you say, imagine what would happen to a country that adopted a fiat standard before accumulating significant industrial capital. This is the developing world of today. Why is that? Yeah, I think uh, having studied this history, I really think the, um, the start of World War I 
marked the and the abandonment of the gold standard marked really a very pivotal point in history because if your country had adopted industrialization and the gold standard which usually came hand in hand you know by the time you had a gold standard um, you, you needed a gold standard because you had developed enough of a division of labor that you were importing and exporting so much that your producers could, uh, you know, needed something like a gold standard. So once a country had had a gold standard and become industrialized, that country will have developed the basic industrial base um, and had sound money. And then after World War One happened, um, if, if your country had not done that by then, which is essentially these countries became the developing world, more or less, because these countries had not developed had not developed enough industrial capacity and had not imported enough of the modern technology of the industrial revolution by the early 20th century and were still agrarian economies. And after 1914, there'd be no more gold standards for them to trade with the rest of the world and world trade would just get messed up. So they never managed to get to that level of industrialization. And that was a massive impediment, I think, in their development. Yeah, that's a really uh, interesting point to think about, and it and really... I, think I should, if if I can just add, I think it's um, uh, this is from Hayek. I think it was Hayek who mentioned this in some form, uh, and I quote him in the book in his book "Monetary Nationalism and International Stability." I think he just um, essentially he he mentions these countries that had. Uh, never developed the gold standard. And then when the developed world went off the gold standard, these countries were, I think, their development was massively compromised by the fact that they didn't have a global trading system from which to be able to import the capital they needed. And um, all of these uh, things carried on for a while. Right, yeah. And um, so it... It, it just kind of spells out the importance of the overarching like need for uh, capital accumulation and like a proper structure for society to actually become prosperous. And that if you don't get the right pieces and the right ingredients, you know, if you don't get those, then it, it can, it can really stop a country from uh, prospering like many of the other Western world nations have. Absolutely. It's um it's it's really um, it's 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 um, detrimental completely if you're not able to have a sound money. If you think about it, the countries that um, didn't develop industrially by the early 20th century, they spent the rest of the 20th century, most of them, going through one financial crisis and one hyperinflation and high inflation and all, you know all of these coming one after the other all throughout the last. Uh, century or so it's uh, it, it, you know these countries that didn't develop this monetary tradition of uh, sound money and didn't adopt industrialization just uh, by you know by the 1940s and 50s and 60s when they were trying to industrialize the world was so massively protected and protectionism had increased so much and protectionism started to increase after world war one uh, precisely because of the monetary problems caused by going off the gold standard. They would, there was very little uh, problem with trade before um, uh, World War I because when they were on the gold standard, you know, 
nobody had balance of payments problems. If, if people bought a lot of things from abroad, they lost gold and the other country made more gold and life carried on. You know, you had more stuff, they had more gold or the other way around. And if you wanted more gold, you know, stop buying stuff. If you want more stuff, stop hoarding gold. It was a simple economic decision that everybody had. But once the currencies became uh, uh, disconnected from gold, the um, and prices domestically started to vary, and governments tried to keep the currencies uh, nominally at the same interest rates. You would get a difference in real prices across countries, which would lead to large movements of capital and goods and um, trade uh, changes. So suddenly, you know the. the Pound was overvalued after World War One, for instance, and because the pound is overvalued, the British are trying to uh, get their gold out of uh, Britain as much as they can, because it would be profitable for them to just sell it in the U.S. and get uh, and get dollars for it, and then exchange the dollars in London. And so, and then the same thing happens with trade. The countries that has <clears throat> And undervalued currencies finds its uh, goods becoming more and more attractive for foreigners and so starts exporting more. And the country with an overvalued currency doesn't export and so that creates problems for its producers. And so, you know, the whole thing leads to problems in trade and that leads to um, tariffs and uh, all these um, restrictions on trade which then really hampered the ability of the uh, developing world to catch up because they hadn't grown. They didn't have a gold standard and they didn't have access to world markets and world markets weren't open as they used to be. And so the, I think you know, the, the transfer of technology that we could have had if we had stayed on the gold standard after 1914 would have been um, much, much, much larger. I think you know, the countries of the world, the, you know, the countries that hadn't industrialized by the 20th century, the developing world would have been in a much better shape if the gold standard had continued and they were able to buy and sell because that's industrialization was spreading all around the world and the engines were going everywhere and electricity was going up everywhere. And um, World War One comes along and the gold standard falls and the whole thing goes to shit. <laughs> Unfortunate. And uh, well, I guess there's there's some hope there, though, uh, at least this time around with Bitcoin that uh, potentially uh, it allows people to have that single exchange, that single money around the world that they could start exchanging. And I, I know I have seen news articles talking about you know people in uh, people in Africa buying goods from people in China using paying with Bitcoin and things like that. So it's kind of uh, we're starting the process of healing. The world is healing safety. <laughs> the world is hidden. Fiat is the real virus. Absolutely. Bitcoin is the vaccine we need. <laughs> um, and I think another really uh, interesting topic as well that you, you touch on in chapter three is it's, it's like some of the propaganda that they use to keep us in their system, right? So they have these economic quote unquote facts. Uh, such as this idea that government bonds are risk-free because the government can just print more of it, right? And it's it's like, where do we, how did we get into this world that, you know, the government is allowed to print money, but you and me, no, you, you and I aren't allowed to print money. Yeah, I mean, 
it's you know the, 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 there's been a history for this obviously it's uh, it's been going on for a long time and it's amazing how there's always this belief that all the previous other governments they destroyed their currencies but you know thankfully they uh, are not us and we are lucky enough to be under our government which <laughs> is yeah. the good one that won't destroy its currency and it's quite amazing i think you know even e even in places like lebanon uh people just continue to maintain faith in this i remember i was speaking to a group from lebanon um a few months ago when the currency had um you know the the uh, lira had lost i think something like 60 70% at that time of its value against the us dollar in just 6 or 7 months or something like that and um you know after presenting bitcoin and the case for bitcoin and the supply and all of that stuff uh, one of the first questions i got was well without a central bank what guarantees the value of bitcoin if from somebody living in Lebanon who just saw their central bank guaranteed currency lose something like 60% of its value, they still think of the central bank as being the reason that their currency is guaranteed to have value. Like they think without the central bank, we wouldn't be able to have money and the money wouldn't be able to have value. And, you know, the central bank messed up now and, you know, <laughs> reasons happened and now the currency has uh, slipped up, but, you know, um, things like that can happen to the best of us. Uh, but, you know, they'll maintain it now at the new exchange rate. And then you know, this time it won't fail. <laughs> surely this time it won't. And then, you know, two weeks later, it drops another 50%. And you just update the number in their head where the, the line in the sand is going to get drawn and they just continue to believe in it. And I remember, I remember teaching macroeconomics in Lebanon and, um, coming across these lines in the macroeconomics textbook about government bonds being uh, <laughs> risk-free. And, you know, I would laugh in class and I would tell the students, you know, this is not true. There's no way that you can make something risk-free, let alone the bonds, the bonds of your government. Uh, uh, the, the government that had managed to, to destroy a, a power grid uh, and, and uh, uninvent electricity. <laughs> it's not risk-free, definitely not risk-free lending. Um, but it's it, it's amazing. It's a, it's a mental construct that just has to emerge around fiat money, where this, um, the, 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 you know, the government propaganda creates this idea that this thing is risk-free and everybody believes in it. And then, uh, you know, it continues to work until, of course, it doesn't work. But um, it, it, there was never really a good reason to suspect it works. And fortunately, with Bitcoin, there's never really a good reason to um, have to deal with it or have to believe it because now we have an option to exit from it. And that's the beautiful thing about Bitcoin. Yeah. Uh, and also in terms of the way they waged the propaganda warfare. So it seems that essentially universities and a lot of the economics jobs get in some sense captured because many of the economics jobs are actually in a central bank. And you're not going to find many Austrians who work in a central bank, right? And you're not going to find... Uh, a lot of the people who can kind of su succeed in those kinds of environments telling the truth. No, absolutely not. It's, um, it's something that's, uh, <laughs> uh, you know, it's uh, in academia, you don't uh, make progress in your career by figuring out why you shouldn't get paid. Um, you don't make progress by figuring out why uh, 
anybody in government shouldn't get paid. You make your progress by figuring out reasons for people to get paid. And so there's always reasons to be afraid and panicky and hysterical about things that can be alleviated by government spending. And uh, there are always jobs to be had for people who um, will wear a suit and look serious while they explain why money needs to keep continuing to be printed. That's just how it works. <laughs> so <laughs> uh, this is ultimately what has happened with academia now. You know, and um, Professor Larry White has done research on this. I think he found, can't remember the exact number, but it'll be in the book. Um, it's somewhere around 70 or 80 or somewhere between 70 and 90. I can't remember the exact number. 70 and 90% of all research done in monetary economics journals has got uh, the funding of the Federal Reserve somewhere, you know, and one of the authors has gotten uh, fed the bucks directly, you know, from the Fed. <laughs> um, <laughs> that, that, you know, fresh Cantillon uh, digital tokens straight in their bank account. <laughs> uh, you know, virgin coins. As they <laughs> <say>. <laughs> I wonder what the premium is on those. Um, but... Uh... <laughs> Yeah, and uh, uh, it's just such a funny thing. And like, I mean, there's a range of ideas involved. So one of them is obviously this idea of, oh, risk, government bonds are risk-free. Uh, and then another one is this idea that, oh, national debt is not an issue because don't worry, safety, and we owe it to ourselves, right? Yes, it's all we. You know, there's that magical construct called we, which justifies anything. It's amazing. It's, um, you know, I mean, I think accountants um, should cringe when they hear this we because, you know, these are different accounting entities and you can't just put them all together and say, well, we all have balance sheets and they all have numbers and so we're all one and the same because that we is made up for some people who are going to spend today and some people are going to have to pay back tomorrow and <laughs> that's just not the same people. The, the people getting to spend today are the economists with a fake job that tells you that uh, debt is good for your children. And the people that are paying his salary are your children. And <laughs> they, you know, probably they could think of better things to do with their money than pay an economist to tell the world 30 years ago <laughs> that debt is not going to be a problem for them. Yeah, right. And anyone with common sense can see that essentially high debt in the government means that either your children or your grandchildren are going to be paying for that at some in some way they're either paying um you know explicitly or they're just paying in the in the sense of lost economic growth and prosperity but the thing is a lot of these economists and you know just like uh, our friend paul krugman and uh, the paul krugmans of the world will come out and tell us oh no see you're assessing it just like a household but see the government is different it's not like a household right and there's this whole propaganda warfare around that yeah of course um these people the you know they get paid from it so they have every interest in believing it but um it it it, it bears no relation to reality of course but, uh, it, that's not the way that it works ultimately there are resources that need to be spent and somebody needs to consume them and somebody's going to have to provide them and all the emotional bullshit in the world can't hide behind uh, that that's the scam of fiat it's essentially uh, basically everybody's being enslaved to their future self or everybody is enslaving their future self i should say 
you're putting your future self in debt for yourself, for you to be able to spend tomorrow. And everybody is stuck in that. And and, and kind of, you know, the sad thing about it, well, it's not very sad, but, you know, the, the, you have to stay on this treadmill, um, even as you start getting more money. Like, it's not like the rich people can just, well, I mean, they can, obviously, but if they just opt out of the system, you know, they would be giving up on serious wealth. Whereas if they just take on more debt, then they'll be able to essentially beat inflation. So everybody has an incentive to stay on the treadmill. Everybody has an incentive to stay indebted. Everybody has an incentive to uh, continue to um, live with a, you know, with a close, relatively close margin to economic problems and economic hardships and massive instability, uh, massive financial instability in their life, because, you know, you're always running, everything's running on debt, everything is fragile, a couple of missed paychecks, and uh, business goes bad, and you know, you lose the business. So uh, this kind of stress takes its toll on people. And the way that the fiat system works is that the only way that you can opt out of this, no matter how much money you have, is through um, giving up on significant money. If you don't get into debt, you're just, you're being the sucker of the inflation game. You're the one who's financing everybody else's uh, mining, basically. Yeah, it seems very much that, um, you know, even if you look online at, you know, the people who are teaching other people how to create wealth and so on, it's all about how to best maneuver through the debt system of like how to maneuver so that you can, you know, get into debt and flip houses or do some other kind of scheme that involves, you know, using uh, the financial system in this kind of uh, aggressive way. Yeah, absolutely. And I think if you look at it all over, um, you start realizing, you know, that for, for small businesses or for large businesses, one of the most important components of success is knowing how to manage debt, basically, and managing debt successfully by, particularly for large businesses, um, basically uh, debt arbitrage, interest rate arbitrage. Like this is, This is what large companies do. Many large companies are essentially hedge funds today. You know, um, you think about what IBM does. IBM is a hedge fund. They are big enough that they can get cheaper credit than pretty much anyone. And they invest very far and very wide. And, um, you know, that's ultimately more of their business, I think, at this point than anything else. And so really managing debt and managing the process of creating debt and borrowing and lending uh, is, is the key to success, which I think is quite wasteful. Because, you know, if you had an advanced monetary system, System like Bitcoin, you just had computers doing the slave work, then we wouldn't have to all be uh, mining every day by getting into debt and worrying about our finances and worrying about missing uh, two paychecks and uh, becoming homeless and so on. You know, with, you wouldn't have this insecurity with your house, with your job, with your all, with all of this fragility because you're having to mine. You'll just have computers doing the mining. Sounds like such an, an infinitely more advanced and better system. Mm, yeah, yeah, for sure. I guess that also, I guess I'm also thinking now of what people are doing in, in response to, you know, creation of Bitcoin and the existence of the fiat system. And uh, almost some of the recent news we've seen uh, with MicroStrategy, this idea of trying to issue debt to buy Bitcoin. And obviously our friend Pierre Richard, who spoke about this and wrote about this in 2014, I think in some ways it's almost like a, a real vindication or a validation of that strategy uh, that because as you were saying, it's about managing your 
your debt. But now in this world where we have, where, you know, the world is slowly, we think, monetizing into Bitcoin, it's almost like a, a validation of that idea, wouldn't you say? Absolutely. It's incredible uh, to watch it happen in front of us, exactly as foretold by uh, glorious leader Pierre Rochard. Yeah. <laughs> and, um, yeah. yeah and uh, also related to that as well is I think it's that people are looking for an alternative because now that interest rate interest rates are coming so low and we know that for example governments don't want to let interest rates rise because that would raise their debt cost and their debt servicing so it's kind of like this is now the new way to exploit the system absolutely and really the way that i think about it you know when you when you think about the fiat standard when i studied it like the conclusion is yep try and find a way to get into as much debt as you can try and get as much bitcoin as you can that's really the the, the winning way of playing um th this game because because uh, Bitcoin is a hard asset, they can't make more of it, but they can make more fiat. And so, if you're if you're uh, if you're playing the fiat game, if you're able to get debt, you're able to get ahead with it, unfortunately. But you know, if you, if you're able to secure with Bitcoin, the incredible thing is that you know now we have the entrepreneurial opportunity to bootstrap the alternative to the debt-based system. Instead of having to continue to monetize debt and continue to live in this world where everybody has to get into debt and uh, everybody has to mine debt in order to um, continue to function economically, you can start monetizing a hard asset. And you monetize this hard asset by holding Bitcoin and effectively you're rewarded for this uh, entrepreneurial bet on Bitcoin through uh, the significant amount of NGU technology that is uh, happening. You know, the, the rise in the price of Bitcoin is the entrepreneurial uh, call being successful. This thing is rising and it shows that the value is going up. And so the value of this monetary system is increasing. So as this continues to go up, we have an, we we have we have the alternative to that, and that's uh, that's I think the the lesson. I think in the long run, and we've discussed this I think uh, on the show before. I think one plausible attack vector in um, you could think about is possibly that they would that there'd be some kind of separation where you can't buy Bitcoin if you. Uh, get into fiat debt or vice versa. I think this might be one way in which they begin to uh, fight back to try and prevent this kind of thing. But otherwise, it's really exciting to watch this going on uh, as long as it can, because, you know, Godspeed to Michael Saylor as he continues to uh, um, see just how much of the fiat uh, of Wall Street he can get into the soundness of Bitcoin. <laughs> well, yeah, and as you point out, this kind of strategy is not available to everybody, right? Because not everybody can borrow at cheap interest rates uh, for this purpose, right? Perhaps for the typical individual, they can get a loan for something like a house at a relatively low rate, but not necessarily uh, to get Bitcoin at this kind of rate. Um, but of course, people will find ways and, you know, well, there'll probably be people doing this kind of thing. But obviously, of course, you know, uh, it has to be done in a, as you mentioning, it's about being uh, kind of responsible in how people are doing it as well, because th there certainly are a lot of cases of people who go into debt and try these kinds of high leverage kinds of strategies and end up getting wrecked. So obviously, yeah. that's something to, you know, make sure, just to make sure listeners aren't thinking, oh, yeah, let's just, you know, maximize. <laughs> it, it is uh, certainly uh, a risk also. So Yeah, don't, don't try this at home and, you know, consult your local uh, debt doctor and your local <laughs> bank on <laughs> what kind of debt slavery is correct for you. <laughs> <laughs> 
So, uh, Safe, tell us a little bit about what's uh, what's the plan coming forward with the Fiat Standard, and uh, what's the way it's going to get released? Yeah. So, uh, right now, I'm uh, publishing the chapters of the Fiat Standard. I've written most of the book, and I'm finishing them, uh, finishing up the chapters two weeks at a time. So, there's about 20, 22 chapters in the book. I'm uh, currently, I've sent out week one, and tomorrow I'm sending out week two. So, by the time this is out, probably week two will be out. And so, you can subscribe on my website, safedean.com, and you'll be getting one of these uh, chapters of Fiat Standard once every two weeks. And also you'll get Principles of Economics also once every two weeks. My textbook, which I'm also working on and finalizing, and I'm making uh, one chapter available uh, every two weeks as well. So you'll be getting one chapter every week, basically. One from each, uh, each week from a different book. And also you can have uh, full access to all my courses. Uh, four economics courses that I've done, uh, Principles of Economics 1 and 2, and the Bitcoin Standard course, and the course on uh, essentially what became Fiat Standard. So for all these four courses, you can have full access to them by signing up on my website, safedean.com. Fantastic. Well, listeners, I would just encourage you also, I, I purchased it and I've got, uh, I'm getting the early versions as well. So listeners, make sure you support Safedean as he is uh, helping uh, break the model of the typical university. And uh, we're, we're going to have a, a free market style of online education delivered in a way that is quite cost effective, I think. Um, and uh, much more liberating. And I think this is the kind of world that we would like to uh, have where people can um, do their uh, businesses and services online. And, I, and I'm uh, looking forward to seeing the next uh, chapters of the Fiat Standard as they become available. Um, so, Safetyne, thank you very much for joining me on the show today. Thank you so much for having me, Stefan. A quick note before we finish up, I also have a side project called ministryofnodes.com.au. So that's with my friend Katan. That is a Bitcoin education website. And so we're offering free guides there. We've got free YouTube guides, which some of you might have seen. We're also offering some products like paid video guides. And also we offer consulting. So if you are unsure of how to get started or how to hold your own keys and run your own Bitcoin node or use Lightning and things like that, we can coach you on some of that stuff. And it's offered at the moment on a value for value model basically you pay what you think it was worth so go to ministryofnodes.com.au for that and if you're looking for the show notes go to stefanlevera.com thanks and i will see you in the citadels 